Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. And Happy New Year 2023. I hope wherever you are, you're warm, you're cosy. Where I am, the wind is lashing rain against the house like it's about to tear it down. It's about as inhospitable a start to a new year as could be imagined. But... Have I got something to keep you dry and warm you up? Yes, I have. And that something is William H. Macy and Felicity Huffman. Married, by the way. You you knew that, right? Celebrated couple. You know them from a lifetime spent in front of the cameras. They're Oscar-nominated, they're Golden Globe-winning, nominated, Emmy-winning, all sorts of stuff. But you may not know that they've lived their lives in the theatre too, uh, setting up theatres in Bill's case. Bill set up the St. Nicholas Theatre in Chicago, which became the celebrated Steppenwolf Theatre. And then with David Mamet, he set up the Atlantic Theatre in Chelsea, New York, which he and Felicity are still extremely involved in. And we sat down in May, my goodness, May of last year, 2022, Seems like ancient history. At the beautiful Castle Muffman, the Macy Huffman House in, uh, that's not really what it's called, just what I call it, in the Hollywood Hills, which I must say seems quite, quite enticing on a day like today in the Hampshire countryside in the south of England. It was a beautiful spring day in LA. It was sun dappled. Ugh. All right, stop that right now. And we talked about all sorts of things. We talked about their theatre dreams. We talked about why Bill turned up as a monk in the back of many scenes that he shouldn't have been in, in Jesus Christ Superstar in 1972. Perhaps the most gruesome and painful-sounding theatre story you've ever heard. We hear about Felicity and how she, how she got the part of Captain Smee in Peter Pan when she was a schoolgirl. We hear I've got an amazing scoop about a possible all-female production of David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross. Famous classic play about real estate agents and masculinity. That sounds exciting. We talk about how Shakespeare ruined my life, but David Mamet didn't ruin theirs. We talk about the curse of the Scottish play. Oh, and we talk about Inviting in the muse. Now, I don't know if you've invited in the muse recently. I don't know if I've ever invited in the muse. I don't know if it's sort of like a a DoorDash situation, whether she's just unavailable in my area. But Bill and Felicity can talk us through that. I think they they have her on speed dial. Ladies and gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call, Ms. Huffman. Mr. Macy and Mr. Cake, to the stage, please. This is your beginners. Thank you both so much for letting me come here for this thing, this strange, incoherent idea of a theatre podcast called Stage Door Johnny. I think like a lot of things, I sort of started with the title and worked back. <laughs> I sort of it's thought... It's good, Doug. It's good. Do you, it's really d- does it mean anything good. to you? Do you, do, you want to, do you know what that phrase refers to? Stage door. Yeah, yes, stage of door course journey. we do. Right, you, you're right. But it's, maybe you should explain it for our listeners. Yeah, should I? Perhaps I should. Well, when I grew up in the late Middle Ages, the idea <laughs> of people who hung around the stage door 
at theatres. They were called you know, someone outside for some stage door Johnny. It was just a sort of generic catch-all term for someone who was waiting for you after the show. And that's slightly how I feel about myself with theatre. <laughs> I feel like I am waiting for people after the show. My first question is, do you guys dream about theatre? Totally. You have them a lot. Oh, Lord. It's exhausting. I'm really? I'm exhausted. Bill, tell yeah. me about your theatre dreams. Well, they replaced school dreams. School dreams, you show up, you forgot to read the thing, you've never been to class, and there's a test. And, and you they don't were have replaced pants. when I was about 20 <laughs> years old. And you don't have pants on. And uh, they were replaced by theatre dreams. where, And it's usually people I know. Just do what we said. It'll be fine. And I hear, well, but I don't know the play. I don't know the play. <laughs> and it's some variation of that all the time. And I wake up furious. Are you naked? Uh, is there any nudity involved? <laughs> no, usually it's not knowing where I am. Right. What the production is, what's required of right. me. And there are specific people you know from your life in the dream with you? Oh, yeah. I was in my theater days. It was Dave Mamet and Stephen Schachter. And they were the stars of my dreams a lot. And I would be pissed off with them for four days for stuff they <laughs> did there, in my dreams. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Just go out. Just go yeah. out on the stage. I think they just follow the exact same thing as yours, which is it's usually a play that I've done a long time ago. And so everyone assumes you've done this part. Me. You'll know it. Same. I have yeah. exactly the same thing. I'm revisiting something. Yes. After long hours. Yes. And I go, I, do I do I know this? The last one I had is I went, I'm I'm so sorry. I need the script. And they gave me the script. And I went, I can't learn the script. I'm going to have to bring the script on stage. And then there was a problem with finding the script. What are yours? Similar. Just very, very similar. Except they are always coming back to something. And they're always really dense, classical oh, roles. Yeah. So part of me thinks, actually, it's a sort of judgment on my, how important were they to you? And in my dream, I think... Well, they were so important to me that I'm pretty sure it wouldn't take much. But there's also a procrastination element to, yes. the, to the dream. Totally. So I'm like, if only I could get to the script. It's a very tall theater building that I have to get down somehow to the bottom of the side <laughs> stage and only then up back up to the, the dressing room where the <laughs> script is. So it becomes a kind of odyssey to try and get down <laughs> through the thing. People keep stopping you. You can't quite get back up to the prompt copy to take a really good look at it and remind yourself of <laughs> how to play Mark Antony tonight. I mean, wow, yours, just... are, yours are thicker than mine. Yeah. <laughs> mine is specific. <laughs> tell the other fever dream, which actually happened to you, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot and you can say no, but tell about when you were in Washington, D.C. doing Jesus Christ Superstar, a bootleg, you hadn't, you didn't get the rights to it. Okay, can we just quickly get a date? When, we, when, was, when did this roughly this happen? It's going to be... 1354. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was still running on Broadway, so this is 70s. the 70s. Yeah. And this production was completely illegal. They had been operating for four weeks on a cease and desist order. And they kept saying, it's not the play, it's a concert. But it was a freaking play. Everyone's dressed up and there's choreography and everything. And they kept saying, shut it down. I got in it for the last four weeks, made a bleeding fortune in those days. And it's Jesus Christ Superstar, it's right? Jesus With Christ all the apostles. And yeah, in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Well, it was the 70s. Did we say that part? Yeah, we oh, We, we were getting high a lot. Good. Closing night. I hope I can work after this. Closing night. <laughs> Bill drops acid. <laughs> and uh before the show yeah he's going to i was tripping <laughs> tripping my head off i mean and this was the most excellent acid i'd ever had wow. and i bought a whole bunch of it with the money i made from jesus christ superstar <laughs> but i mean you know you pass your hand like that and you'd see a rainbow really hallucinogenic excellent acid anyway all these people are there. It's the closing night. And there are all these people in the audience having religious experiences. And for some reason, I got it in my head to be in all the scenes. So I wandered out on stage, every single scene. And they're all singing. I don't know. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing? And I just, in my monk's robe, just 
looked compassionately on all the scenes. I bet it went without comment, really, except from your fellow actors. But for me, it was great. I was tripping my head off. I was looking at the audience. I was looking at these bizarre-looking actors. They had makeup on, and, you know, they cut themselves looking like... I just love the idea of, like, Jesus and Mary Magdalene doing a love song, and there's this random guy in the corner (laughs) looking at them. But that's kind of a fever dream. The creepy monk. I have a similar story. It's not acid drenched. By the way, that's a real, that's a, that's a proper story. You know, I see you one drink too many, Peter O'Toole, and I raise you some LSD. Um, There was an amazing, uh, very, very influential Shakespeare director called John Barton, who was also a great academic. And all those seminal Royal Shakespeare Company uh, productions in the UK of the Wars of the Roses. He and Peter Hall were were co-directors. And John Barton was this amazingly austere, brilliant, huge-brained sort of theatre genius. And there was a famous story that he bounded up on stage after a dress rehearsal once to start giving notes. And it got so animated about what he wanted the actors to do he backed up towards the trap door which was open oh, no. on stage and just as though he was sort of you know, they were watching a kind of accident unfold in slow motion he indeed backed further and further and further until eventually he disappeared <laughs> oh. straight down Everybody rushed up on stage, crowded round, couldn't see him. And people went down, couldn't find him. Five minutes later, he walked back in <laughs> through the front of the theatre, still giving the same note. <laughs> he was only sort of paused, and his focus was so intense that he barely noticed that he'd plummeted. People get hurt in the theatre the floor all the time. They do. We were at Circle Rep. Can't remember the name of this, but some German thing. I can't remember the actor's name. He kept, uh, he would get upset with everyone in, in his office and he would pound the desk and pound the desk. It was one of the things he did. And they had one of those spikes where you put a, the, the bills on it. Uh, you know, you stick it. It's like a, a 10 penny nail. It's yeah. not a needle. It's thicker than that, but like a nail sticking straight up. And I remember in rehearsal thinking, is that a good idea with this performance as it's developing? And we were in the third third week of the run. And I was downstairs. I heard it on the monitor. You hear the audience go, ah. He had, of course, oh. slammed down his thing and oh. his hand on this thing. And that went right through and oh. stuck out the other. And he lifted up his hand and it's going through his hand. Oh. And he rushed off stage. And uh, Colin Stenton. Do you know Colin? I He's, do. I do. Colin lives in Great Britain now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He invented dry. He's from Canada and the funniest guy. At any rate, he walked out on stage. Nobody knew what to do. And Colin says, I've been 25 years in the theater. I have always wanted to say this. Is there a doctor in the house? (laughs) But I'm always astounded how no matter what happens on stage, a majority of the audience will go, do they do that all the time? Right. You know, they're not quite sure. Back at the Guthrie. Oh, I can't remember his name. Anyway. Broke his ankle, didn't sprain it, broke his ankle right. in a dance during a Christmas carol. <laughs> and um, Dangerous. finished the freaking dance. He was on stage for another minute and a half, uh, white as a sheet when yeah. they finally got him off stage. But he went through that whole scene dancing, yep. dancing. Jesus Christ. I remember doing a play that Alan Akebourne directed when I was very young actor. It was a play about a rowing eight. They had this beautiful great big rowing shell on stage. And we had to get in this boat and row away. It was kind of before rowing machines, Peloton rowing machines. So it was kind of a novelty to see these people rowing furiously on stage and going nowhere. I tripped over this bloody boat, which took up most of the stage, fell and cut myself really badly. One of those ones that just like a hemorrhage, just bleeds everywhere. And I remember it was in the round, this Akebourne's Theatre in Scarborough in Yorkshire in England is in the, in the round, Stephen Joseph Theatre, and somebody shouted out the second round, she said, oh, look, he's cut himself, oh, but he's not bothered. <laughs> he's not bothered. 
So I just carried on. So this was a great novelty. And maybe she thought that, you know, exactly this. I was producing blood in the play every night. Does he do that every night? (laughs) Yes, that's an impressive bag of blood. By the way, did you go to theatre when you were when you were younger? Was was you a th- were you a theatre going household or? No, I grew up in Colorado, so right. sort of. So, what was the first play you ever saw? My mom took me from Colorado, this little town in Colorado, to New York, and we went to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Channing uh, Tatum. Channing Tatum, there. yes, that's right, <laughs> Carol Channing. Carol Channing. There you go. Yes, and that's what I remember. Mm. Carol Channing. With Carol did Channing. You, and did you do you have memories of how it struck you? Did you love it? Was it weird? Uh, yeah, I think we were way up in the balcony. Right. What I mainly remember is the play went on, and then at the end, as the curtain was coming down, she bent down and kept waving to the audience <laughs> and leaning down as, as the curtain went down. <laughs> that's a great I memory. don't remember seeing a play for the first time. I must have seen my brother in plays and um, – Oh, well, sure. School plays, but like a real play. Do you remember the first play you did? I did the high school play. Yeah. They did Camelot. I played Mordred, and I thought, oh, yeah, I liked it. Do you remember what you liked? I got laughs, girls. <laughs> you got out of class for it. I didn't make a fool of myself. Seemed to, People seemed to enjoy it. And uh, laughs, I sort of felt, girls, no homework. Yeah. Kind of fell into it, failed at everything else. Not It's not a new story, but pretty much everything else I tried, I didn't have any particular talent at it. I did Peter Pan. I was in fifth grade, and it was the older kids that were doing it, but one of the older kids got sick. So during rehearsals, I played Smee, and then the older girl came back. And they were like, Flick has got to go because Verena's back. Or something like that. And the wonderful Tommy Crumb went, no, Flick has been rehearsing it. She'll be playing Smee. Oh, oh, yes. Recast. Oh, yes, it was, it was seminal. Oh, that had to feel great. <laughs> it really did. And I was justice prevailed. Kid. I love I know. it. Justice prevailed. Who was that teacher? Tom Crumb. So you've been essentially sort of paying off Tom Crumb's debt <laughs> ever since. I better keep doing this. And yes, being good at it. Uh, and I rem- I don't remember this, but another teacher remembers this. I think it might have been before this. I went to this crunchy, crunchy school. And they went, what does everybody want to be when they grow up? Must have been second or third grade. I don't remember it. And everyone was like, I want to be this, I want to be that. And I didn't say anything. And later I went up to my teacher, Mike Stranahan, and I took this crumpled piece of paper and I put it in his hand and I ran away and he opened it up and it said, I want to be an actress. And he remembers wow. that. Wow. When was the last time you were on stage? We did some plays here. Again, Dave Mamet. Uh, it was called Nightstick. It was part of uh, uh, two one acts. I think it's called the Christopher Boyce the, Communion. The Christopher Boyce Communion is the whole That's thing. That's exactly right. And we did, what's the name of that little theater? The um, Odyssey. Odyssey Theater. Yes. One of those. Yeah. How did you feel doing it? Do you I felt good. You know, it was it was sort of big for me. Dave Mamet's writing really dense dialogue, as we all know. But it's gotten denser, <laughs> if that's possible. And it's two guys talking, and it really came out to... One guy talking, and I was the guy. What I, it was 19, 20 pages long. I had just come off of Shameless. After Shameless, we'd had a couple of people of a certain age come on, and that show shot very quickly, and there were big speeches, and they couldn't do it. It was very uh. sad. They asked to be replaced. And so I read this thing, and I thought, I don't know if I can still do yeah, this. Yeah. It was a 20-page monologue, basically. Yeah. yeah, it was. But I did, and I felt pretty good. Bill, I saw you do it, and it was like watching Mammoth's brain <laughs> be made flesh on stage. That doesn't really do justice to it. You know, People who don't know David Mammoth's work, it is so particularly written, and it has this extraordinary musicality to it and an extraordinary density of language. I mean, I cannot, I've never done one of his plays and I always wish I could have done, but I cannot imagine trying to learn it. Like, like a sort of version of Samuel Beckett, I imagine, in that there are repetitions, interruptions, 
continuations, th- things that thread round. It's a mixture of the incredibly poetic and the sort of quotidianism mashed poetical. up into this thing. But watching you do it, it felt like somebody just breathing out. It was like watching a great dancer dance incredibly complex choreography. And I can remember, Bill, at one point, I couldn't believe I was seeing you do this. I remember you putting a handful of dry twiglets (laughs) into your mouth whilst doing this speech. And I was like, does this guy... Does he need? It's like it was like you were juggling chainsaws or something. It was like you decided to flamethrow at the same, to breathe fire at the same time. I was like, are you gonna drink? You can't eat some dry snacks at the same time. That would be impossible, even if we were just sitting around and being able to speak. But doing it, it was just sheer showing off, and it was. It, it was completely magical, and it was the funny, funny thing of being in a tiny space with a person who is a master of that art. And I remember thinking, this is, a, this is one for the fucking ages. All right, we have to talk about something else. Now no, because well, I, have to, I, I had a very crazy. similar... Now listen, was, was the last time you were on stage, Felicity, the, uh, was, was that The Anarchist? Yes. Also at The Odyssey? No, it was at a weird oh, yes. little theater down on Santa Monica. Hall- yeah, Santa yeah, Monica yeah, yeah, Boulevard. Because I, I saw that too. I know. That and was a so very, cool. very, very similar thing. There was something that came alive in you and Rebecca Pigeon, right? Mm-hmm. You both you did it together. It was something that came alive with you, these two virtuosi of this instrument doing it. What do you remember of that? How did you feel doing it? What I remember is packing to go to the theater, bringing my 12-year-old, and we had a cooler full of alcohol. And at the end of the play, because there were no bars around, my 12-year-old would open up the cooler, set up a bar, and that's when everyone would kind of hang around and drink afterwards. And that's when you came. It was sort of, I think when you came, it might have been our inaugural bar opening with my 12-year-old bartending. (laughs) And I remember sitting around and chatting with you, and my brother was there. Yeah. And my brother left and went, God, he's a charming motherfucker. (laughs) Do you think I'm as charming as him? And I was like, nope. He was like, I think I can do that. And I said, I don't think you can do that. (laughs) I've met your brother. He's extremely That's what I remember. Tell me, when was the last time you were in a theater? We went to see Holland Taylor do her one-woman show oh, yeah. about Anne Richards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Magnificent. Was and great? before that, we were in New York, and we saw American Buffalo. Yay. Amazing. I and saw that too. we yeah. saw Company with Patti LuPone, your oh, pal. Oh, yeah. And we saw Mr. Saturday Night with your pal. Um, David Pamer. David Pamer. David Pamer. Look at that. Three plays, four plays. Yes. Yeah, so and we did two readings while we were there. That's oh, right. did you? Mm. Yeah, what did you read? Mammoth place. Mammoth place. Two mammoth places. New ones? Yeah, new ones. Oh, exciting. Then there's talk of a... Can we talk about this? Yeah, production of Glengarry Glen Ross with women. All women. Oh, that's amazing. They did a reading of it. And you know what? It worked. It worked really well. Did it really? Yep. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. This one was great. so exciting. Who did you read? (laughs) Can you tell us that? Moss. Moss. You read Moss. I mean... It's one of the greatest. I read the asshole. Maybe they're all assholes. Are we speaking of this? No, we're talking about it. Oh, we're not speaking of it. We're just, yeah, we're just talking about it. It's so great. It's so great. Okay, so just talk about Mamet. Did you guys meet with him? He was my teacher at Goddard College. That's right. And then we started a company in Chicago called the St. Nicholas Theater. And then. Which was the precursor to Steppenwolf. Precursor to Steppenwolf. Right. They took over the uh, theater that we built. Then we started another theater called the Atlantic Theater, which still exists in New York and I think is one of the premier off-Broadway theaters down in Chelsea. So you, Flicka, met Bill when you, you, you and Mamet had already formed a company. And have you even ever talked about this? I don't really know how you guys met. Was it in a theater? Is this a theater love story? I never touched your man. <laughs> <laughs> my teacher. I never touched her. Bill was your teacher. <laughs> this is, gets better and better. Bill was my teacher. Mammoth started a studio and a bunch of my friends went. They went off for the summer to work hard and I w- went off to Europe to be with my boyfriend. Hello. So I miss, I always came late to school 
And I showed up and they went, you have to interview. You have to be a part of this cool acting studio within NYU. And you have to interview with this guy named Bill Macy. And so I walked in ready with all my theater questions. And there was Bill with an eyes on shirt with a collar up, who was married at the time. Oh. And uh, all he wanted to do was talk about Italy. So I just oh. talked about Italy and I got in. And then uh, at the end of the year, the marriage wasn't going so well. And okay, I ended up I skinny it. dipping, <laughs> and that got his attention. <laughs> oh, Vermont. In Vermont. Right. Dave Vermont. Would take, I was going to say, Dave would Chelsea. take all the students, and uh, we rented a college up oh, there. And on. oh, it was the best time. We did it about six years, right? Six oh. or seven years. One day, Dave says, Who feels summery? And four kids raised their hands, and he said, Okay, summarize everything we've done this summer. And they wrote the practical handbook for the actor. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Who feels summary? I know. It's hilarious. God, this sounds idyllic. I would have oh, fallen in love with both of you <laughs> in a heartbeat in a pair of Speedos in Vermont. Um, okay, so, and then you've had this, you know, lifelong professional collaboration with David Mamet, right? I just can't think of another actor. I mean, we, there are actors who have specific, very, very long relationships with, you know, there were actors who had long relationships with Harold Pinter, actors who had long relationships with Samuel Beckett. There were people who, you know, were great interpreters of their works, but you are that for him. I think we're some of that for some. him. I mean, I certainly owe my career to Dave. Me too. Absolutely. Joe Montaigne does a lot of it. That, right. that whole yeah. Chicago group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever feel like it's ruined your life? Theater? <laughs> theater? No, David Mamet. <laughs> no. Why? Well, here's why. I, I have a theory about this. Not you. This is entirely to do with me. As Shakespeare, I think, has ruined my life. And I put Mamet in the same category of like sort of those authors of whom doing their work is such an extraordinary disproportionately amazing experience. So warping to your sense of everything else. Oh, yes. That everything else seems pallid, less avant-garde, less sexy, less urgent, less necessary after doing it. Now, look, I'm purely talking for myself. I became sort of addicted. I'm serious. I became addicted to extremity in my life. And certainly in my experience of an artistic exchange, by doing these great Shakespeare plays, nothing else felt like it matched up. To my, I think, detriment, there's something about doing those Shakespeare plays that made everything else feel small. Even and Desperate Housewives? Even- <laughs> I mean, there must be some exceptions. <laughs> and surely that can be one. God knows that was Shakespearean in every possible That's way. True. <laughs> Does that, any of that sound familiar with Mamet or not really at all? Do you feel like it was a gateway? Did Mamet give you a gateway to everything else? He did, but I, I hear what you're saying. There have been times with him that were so creative. Right. And he was the engine, and we were swept up in that, the heat of him. And uh, you, the next play you go to is a bit of a come down. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, seriously, was it ever hard to do other stuff? Or did you read other stuff after you finished? Did you just play teach at the Delmar Warehouse? Do you ever, you get sent a ton of plays and they're not mm. that? Do you feel like, mm, I think I'll pass? Dave is one thing, you know, there's right. lots of other things, right, right, like right, right. the aforementioned William Shakespeare. Right. Although, I don't like Shakespeare as much as you do. <laughs> so much work. <laughs> well, you say that. I wonder if it's similar in some ways, only because I've always found, this is partly going back to my fever dreams, but I've always found Shakespeare quite easy to easy oh to remember, God. just because that crazy delivery system, the language is so... Beautiful and precise and compelling. Ma'am, it must be like that to a certain extent, isn't it? Isn't it well, precise in a way and musical in a way that you get one word out of place and it doesn't feel right? It's not easy. It's not easy to, particularly his later plays are not easy to memorize. For me, to answer your question, I mean, yes, if you don't get one word right, it does feel out of place, but then you're kind of in the weeds. But doing a Mammoth play 
it's like an extreme sport. If you line it up right and you are right, you know, whether it's the fall line that you're skiing down a cliff or whatever it is, then the mountain supports you and it's the most amazing. But if you're wrong, it's, it's just a disaster. I mean, I've fucked up some nights in Dave's plays where I've just burst into tears and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I ruined your beautiful play. So when I'm finished with a run, I'm tired and I'm ready for something. <laughs> ready for Desperate Housewives, something a little easier. So let me ask you this. I've always felt this about these, these Shakespeare plays. This is the only thing I can sort of relate it to, but I've always felt that they demand that you grow. Yes. I mean, they demand that. They demand that you grow a bigger brain, bigger heart, bigger balls, or you will be humiliated. If you're going to try to encompass the size of that, you have to grow and expand. It seems to me, and maybe this is just my desperate insecurity speaking, but but it seems to me that it is an entry-level requirement that you try to expand yourself as a human being. So that sounds like an absurd and impossible thing to do, but I do think an exposure to these great plays does that or demands that. Does that have any familiarity with Mamet? Do you feel like you need to grow in that same way? Or do you feel like you're enough for him to begin with? This is sort of a philosophical question. Yeah, yeah. My philosophy is, yes, you're enough. And that even with something as grandiose as a Shakespeare play, which covers so much territory and so many ideas, and the language is so difficult, even then, you better figure out what the nitty gritty is. I mean, you better, yeah, of course. you better drop all of that stuff that you're the prince or you're the king or you're a beggar. Or you better drop all that and figure out what you're saying to the other actor in a way that's really down and dirty and um, as simple as you are, as simple or as complex as you are. You better do it. This is assuming that you have the the technique and the physical chops to be understood, to suss out what the speeches mean and to speak them big and loud in a big theater. If you can do that, you better get down to the nitty gritty, just the stuff that hasn't changed since we were Cro-Magnons. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely hear you. The ideas in it, the profound expression of what Mm -hmm. it is to be human being is so intense and so enormous that I always feel like my reach exceeds my grasp, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you can, you can get a few licks in, but you know, you'll always be beaten by this thing. I That's, feel that way. You do? Do you feel yeah. that way about Mamet? Yes. It expands my brain. It expands my heart. It expands my ovaries. Yes. And I have to, I have to step up. The right. play is what he's saying, how he's saying it is bigger than what I usually bring. It's climbing Everest. (laughs) It really is an athletic event. I mean, if if you've got a big role in Shakespeare, you're going to go from A to Z and back again just to get through the whole thing every night. It just feels so extreme. What's Mm -hmm. being talked about feels, what's being discussed just feels so extreme. Human extremity, I just find, Mm. I find it so extraordinary, so fascinating, and Mm -hmm. so... It just makes you feel so in touch with something, something extraordinary. And, and, I really, and I really only get that in the theatre. I really only get that in the theatre. Is it the pageantry of it? The, the uh, size of the cast? And- no, I think it's much more about the ideas. I mean, it's two things. It's, it's that, to me, no writer ever expressed more profoundly what it is to be human. And at the same time, clothed it in this delivery system of this poetry, which is like a kind of bomb exploding for the idea. Mm. So the language that fits the size, the language is so extravagant because the thought is so, the the implications, the profundity of thought is so extravagant. It can only be expressed like that because it's so, what is being talked about is so profoundly insightful. That's the way it it feels Mm. to me. Do you miss it? Do wait, you... wait, can you tell your Shakespeare story? Oh, we oh no, no, your Macbeth story? That's one of the only ones. I'm not superstitious, okay. but um, 
the the superstition is you can't say Macbeth in a theater right. unless you're doing that production. Right. And it goes back to, I think, not in Shakespeare's time, but bad stuff started happening to that production uh, within a hundred years of his death. I think it was actually, I've been teaching Macbeth in my kids' schools. I've been doing a lot oh of reading about this. I think it was a 19th century invention by a guy, a guy called Herbert Beerbohm Tree, who tried to gin up uh, publicity for a new production of Macbeth <gasps> by saying, uh, the guy who was playing Malcolm in the original production, he died the day before the show was going to start. And that a curse created, there was a curse on it. And of course, because it's to do with the occult, the supernatural, it sort of gathered this creepy, spooky Victorian ghost story momentum. It does sell part tickets. of the culture ever since you know oh my god i think that's the origin of it i mean i might be so are you not superstitious about that word i'm all about the theater superstitions i really do think that there is something even if i don't emotionally believe it i want to honor the tradition of it i think there's something very interesting about there's something about observing these things that came before, right? Doesn't it's it feel a, like that? A ritual? It's a, it's a ritual. It's, it's a ritual. History. These elders who came before us, who inducted us in these ways, they feel something like a, a sort of I trust about that. When I first came up, you couldn't whistle in a theater. It was bad well, luck to whistle. Yeah. That was, of course, a very practical thing because, because flymen used guys. to be sailors, the right? Sailors. And they would, the, the signal to let something go. And so get if a you flat whistle, come down and knock it, put you on Queer yeah, Street. This is a good segue. Se- superstitions. Do you guys have any when you're in a show? Just the Scottish play. I, I And I have many examples. Okay. We were doing Mr. Holland's Opus, Stephen Herrick directed. It's about a teacher, and we were in the theater, their theater. It's their auditorium, but it had a... This gym auditorium. Yeah. It had a fly loft. It had an act curtain. It was a theater. He says, what, what do you think the kids are doing? Maybe at Macbeth. And all the actors, all the stage actors, we all looked at each other. As soon as he said it, I mean, you could see it buzz around because there was a big scene. And finally, I went... Wait, wait, wait. I'm so sorry. I can't let this pass. You said the Scottish play in a theater. We're not doing You got to go outside. Right. And he said, what? And I said, it's bad luck. Go outside. I made him go outside, spit three times, yep. turn around and come back, ask permission to come back in. And uh, he said, what? what? And I said, you don't know this? It's uh, And all the actors. Is that what it is? You go outside, you spit, you I turn make around that three times. You got to do something. Totally right. Spit, turn around three times, have to ask permission to come back in. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he comes back in. And ha, 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 he did it. Macbeth, he says it again. We go, okay, now, seriously, outside you, you can't do that, man. He said, no, 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 we got to get going. I said, no, you got to go outside. He said, we're behind. We got to go. Let's run the scene. On the clock, after lunch, a platform with a Panavision camera collapsed, trapping four extras that had to go to the hospital. The camera was toast. We were shut down for the afternoon. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. And I raced to find Stephen Merrick <laughs> and say, yes, now do you believe me? Felicity, any superstitions when you're in a show? Do you have any? I do say, again, this is from my friend Sarah Paulson. I do say a little prayer to the muse right before I step on stage. Oh, this is great. I do. This is great. Which is just that I give it to the muse and I just, I invite her in. She was like, just make sure you invite her in. Uh. You ever been visited by her? The muse. God, I wish. Yes, you have. The muse? Never. Yes, you have. Of course you have. Are you talking about that time? I've I've never had formal introduction to the muse, but are you talking about that thing where you just sort of get... Something happens. Oh. oh, Yes, of course you have. The greatest state. Is Is this essentially why we do it, do you think? That that feeling of a total loss of self in... With me, it's world. only happened twice. And each time it w- was a minute, a minute at the most. And it felt vaguely like I might have been passing out because wow. it was sort of otherworldly and I was watching myself. But both times I thought, well, you go, boy. I don't know what you're doing. I mean, I just gave it up. Really? You like pulled back and you watched yourself? Yeah. I God. felt a little sort of out of it and wonky. Wow. My but- brother has that scheme. When mm. he's really in the groove, he pulls back and he sees himself going down. Really? Gosh. Have you ever had that? 
I mean, yeah, I, I'd like to think that I've had it quite a few times, though. I'm so, I mean, uh, that that sort of out of body, gosh, that out of body, like a sort of top shot almost, and you're yeah. seeing yourself do it. I suppose not, perhaps in quite such a sort of semi hallucinatory way, but but that feeling of a total loss of self consciousness, which is few and far yeah. between. I'm not I mean, just talking about having them in the palm of your hands. Oh, uh, okay. That happens too. You're you're hot. You're hot. And you, you got the audience. You're just some. You're, you're talking, talking about out of yeah, body. Yeah. It might have something to do with all the LSD I mentioned at the sure. beginning. <laughs> yeah, that goes without saying. It totally could have something. Um, the muse. Gosh, that's an extraordinary idea. I've never had that out of body. I've had moments where I go, I don't know where that came from. Okay, so this leads on to my next question. When was the part? What was the part that you thought you would best in? When did you think you were like really on fire? Do you have a memory of something that just felt like it fitted you? I guess, you know, I'd have to ask, what's it feel like to be great? Is that, you know, I always sort of associate it with like, you're in a musical and you're, you're funny girl or you're right. in gypsy or something and everybody loves you. <laughs> I think I assume, I think, I, I think I equate being good with being loved, huh. which is really deeper than we wanted to go in this thing. So I, I haven't had that many experiences of being on stage and going, they love me. Happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you really feel like, yeah. I'm great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm killing this. Okay. This is good. <laughs> I love that. I do. I, mean, I, I, I love that. It was there one especially, or they're just too numerous to mention. Nightstick. Nightstick, yes. That, that Eating felt the dry triumph. nuts. That Eat felt... The- Twiglets. Triumphant, just because it was not unlike your Shakespeare. It's just, it's an athletic event. Right, right. Memorize it. But no, I think various plays at various times. You're hot one night and um, you can do no wrong. And um, boy, it's the only thing that's kept me going, I got to say. Right. Because doing theater is an up and down. What's the only thing that's kept you going? Feeling like you're good at it? Yeah. You have those parts or those nights when you're just firing on all cylinders. And um, for me, it it feels like I'm driving, you know, it's not somebody else's idea. This is everything you're seeing. I'm making up right now. Yes. Well, isn't that kind of the genius of theater for actors Mm. that when Mm. the curtain goes up, no one can walk on stage and say, we've got to go again. There was a booming shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one's going to cut away from you. Mm. You, Of course, there is a choreography to it. There's a focus shifting thing to it that you observe, but you own it. Mm-hmm. Don't you feel that? And that feeling of ownership driving, as you put it, is unbelievably it's thrilling, unbelievable. isn't it? unbelievable. Let's talk about the audience in relationship to that. And I'm also aware that I, I don't want to keep you for the rest of your lives, though I could <laughs> keep you for the rest of your lives. We could just shut these doors, the four of us, we could get some snacks. We've got people coming for uh, Thanksgiving, you- <laughs> uh, so we probably shouldn't. But listen, let's just quickly talk about the audience. How do you guys feel about an audience when you're doing a show? Do you, are you aware of them in any particular I'm way? I'm so aware of the audience. I wonder if it's a little bit like a marriage. It sort of depends on the moment. You're glad they're there, you need them, you hope it works out, but there are some nights where you just are like, oh, you fuckers. (laughs) And there are some nights when you go, thank you so much, I didn't deserve that. Right. And you can feel the celebration between you. I mean, I remember doing The Anarchist in that tiny, I don't need, I think it was like 60, how, 60 seats in that, it was really small. And this... Guy, this young guy was in the front row with size 13 white sneakers on. And the front row is about, I don't know, four feet away from where I'm sort of turning myself inside out, trying to remember these lines and make them come alive and make sense of it. And he took, he crossed his legs and with his size 13 foot started going like flipping it around. So it was like, It might as well have been a disco ball right there at the center stage. And I'm kind of looking at his sneaker going, don't look at the sneaker flapping around. And it also meant that he was bored because sometimes he'd pay attention, it would be still. And when he'd get bored, it would flap around again. That guy I'm still mad at. <laughs> at the St. Nicholas And that guy theater. was our dentist's son. Oh, what about that? Oh. You, oh, my God, you actually knew him. Bill. 
at the St. Nicholas Theater, which is the first theater that we built that in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. When I say we built that theater, I'm a bit of a carpenter. I mean, we built the theater. It was a printing company. Opening night of American Buffalo, Bill is staple gunning <laughs> carpet to the steps for the for the audience coming in. And they're like, Bill, Bill, it's like 15 minutes to curtain. You've wow. got to go get in character. Because wow. I played Bobby in that I remember, production. yeah. Anyway, I got I found the seats, and they had come out of a high school, and they were basically folding chairs that were ganged in groups of fours. We called them the Actatron, because when the audience got bored and they all crossed their legs at the same time, the creaking and groaning of these wooden seats, you, you'd have to repeat the line. It was so loud. There was no question when you lost the audience. <laughs> I did a play at Pasadena Playhouse. You're talking about Pasadena. Oh, you saw... Um, yeah, I like that theater. Beautiful old oh, story theater. theater. Yeah. We did Doubt. Oh, wow. You know that John Patrick Shanley? Yeah. 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 The West Coast premiere. I did sorry, a, a, I with a, a woman called Linda, actress called Linda Hunt. Yes. Oh, Linda Hunt. An absolute Hunt. visual gag whenever we were on stage together. <laughs> I'm seven foot tall. She's the size of this teacup. <laughs> and we just were... just. It's just enjoyable to look at. Tiny She's gnome. a magnificent actor, too. She's a magnificent actor. So, <laughs> two, two things stand out from that memory of the audience. I remember... Pasadena, God love them. There, there are some elderly white people there with some hearing difficulties. I mean, I think this is not uncommon to theater audiences, right? There's a, is a demographic, and a, one of the great problems with theater is that it, we would like it to be more diverse, and maybe, God willing, one day it will be. But my history has been with a lot of hard of hearing people <laughs> in the fourth row, and a guy said. The name of this play is <laughs> Doubt. He was saying as a commentary on, you know, the, the sort of ambiguity that was going on. He was just reminding himself. <laughs> and the same guy kept up a kind of running commentary. Oh, and Lord. one of the greatest feedback I ever got from an audience was when I had a huge, great peroration, this great big speech, trying to plead this priest's innocence. And at the end of it, there was a <laughs> pause. And the same guy said, Good acting. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Our friend Kirk Deutsch. <laughs> oh, God, it's such a good story. At where? Long Wharf. At Long Wharf, I think. And he had a nude scene. The curtain goes up on the nerds. and on a, yeah. He gets out of bed. And I, I guess there's no dialogue. So the curtain comes up and he's trying to be relaxed about being naked. So he's sort of on a chaise lounge with his legs sort of out and everything out. And he's stand, lying, you know, sort of relaxed trying to pretend and there's there's a moment of quiet and then from the back of the house you hear a guy go looks like an acorn <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh, oh no. poor and then I'm sure it brought the house down how do you recover from that how do you know. recover from that same production we had a woman who drove into the audience on a sort of golf buggy <laughs> Just moments before curtain down at a matinee, curtain up rather, she drove down to the front of the pulpit on stage where where the character I was playing, Father Flynn, delivers the opening sermon. She parked, clearly disabled in this golf cart, right in front of the pulpit. I got about a minute and a half into this opening speech and she decided to leave. But she had to back up. Oh, no. And rather like just what we've been hearing outside for most of this podcast. Beep, beep, beep. This vehicle is reversing. And she could not see in the darkness of the auditorium. So she was cannoning into people's shins and going, Jesus Christ, careful with that thing. And it took her about, you know, sort of 10 minutes to get out. And it just felt, I, what I loved about it was she was like, I'm, yes, I'm disabled, but I don't have to sit here and watch this shit. <laughs> she was like, you know. But don't you have that limits. great story about you were on stage? I think it was you and a kid was and put like his oh, drawing on the front. Yeah. What was that? Yeah, that was at the Globe, uh, the Glo- Shakespeare's Globe in London when I played Coriolanus for the first time. I did it again in uh, Shakespeare in the Park at, for the public. But the first time I did it in the Globe, you know, they have people standing. It's this kind of act, mm. you know, Elizabethan yeah. recreation as far as it can be. So the groundlings are all stood 
And it's kind of amazing. You were talking about that sort of strangely trippy feeling of having the audience at the palm of your hand. Mm. You know, when you make a group of Brazilian tourists who are all making out with each other listen to you under a starry London night, and you can mm. see St. Paul's across the Thames. It truly feels magical and kind of hallucinogenic too. You think this is, I've just, you know, I've got this extraordinary access to some kind of power. Anyway, <laughs> it wasn't working for this kid who had put a drawing pad on the stage. <laughs> he was sort of had his chin rolling there, resting on the stage, and he put a drawing pad, and he was, I could see quite clearly, drawing me. <laughs> and the, the drawing was not flattering. And he was sort of occasionally showing, showing it around to his mates and his sort of family, and it was sort of titter while I'm trying to be the Shakespearean tragic hero. So I did have to go over at one point and crush his pen. <laughs> I stood with a sort of jack-booted heel of this character. Well done. I spr splurged ink all over his book, and I think there was some complaining about it. Catherine Hepburn stopped a play and said, Get that dog out of this theatre. And there's a long pause, and somebody says... She's blind. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. All right. Last, very last question, so I don't have to take up any more of your precious afternoon. When you sit down in a theater to watch a friend or anybody, which is to watch a play that you think is interesting, how are you feeling in the audience? Is there anything that occurs to you, anything that knowing intimately what they're doing, what they're going through. Does anything, anything recurring strike you? When it's a friend, yes, I'm very aware of half hour. That's when they, the stage manager comes on the tannoy and says, half an hour to beginners, ladies and gentlemen, half an hour to beginners, this is your half. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there anything? And we go, thank you. Yeah, you have to say thank you. You have to say thank and you. And then I do count it down. I'm like, oh, they just got 15 minutes. Oh, they got 10. Oh, they do got you five. Really? I do because so, I'm so, so happy I'm not that person behind the stage. Is that how you're feeling? It. Is it like yes. survivors? Do you have any survivor's guilt? Do you feel like this is not going to no. be me right now? No, Somebody I don't have survivor's guilt. I'm like, well, I have, I'm a little bit like, I'm really sorry. I'm sure you're going to be great. Don't worry. <laughs> no vicarious, like, yeah, I suffered. This, I've been through this. I've thrown up in fire buckets. Now it's your turn, my friend. Maybe openings, but I feel jealousy usually. Do you? Yeah, I want to be up there. Do you? Mm. Yeah. I have that. I when have it's that good, too. when it's good, I just go, oh, I'd love to play that role. I'd love to do that. Do you mm. feel that? Yeah. And what about if it's a friend? Do you feel protective of the friend up there? Yeah, bound and determined to find he or she funny yeah. or moving or... Do you? I do. I think I have a complicated relationship to it because I, I often find bad productions or bad performances much more revealing about, particularly if it's a great play, classic play. If you see a great play done badly, I always think, oh, the gap between what I'm seeing and how I can imagine it being is incredibly instructive. I find I learn much more mm. from bad plays. The, the problem with that is, if there's anybody you care about in it and you've got to see them afterwards, the oh, appalling yeah. knot in my stomach. That I know I will be called upon to do more acting tonight after the show than they will have done on it when I see them. You Felicity solved it for me. I mean, your philosophy is great. There's one response. You were yes. great. Right. We loved yes. watching you. Yes. Thank you so much. I actually tell people who come to see me in a play, yeah. I'll be, I really do. I'm like, all I want to hear when you see me is I was great and that you loved it. And if I actually want your opinion, I'll check in with you later. But okay. that's all I want to hear. Okay. And everyone's like, okay. Yeah, that's good. I'm and some you. people still won't do it. They're like, oh, that was terrible. <laughs> what were you doing? And I was wow. like, hey, remember my prompting? Wow. I heard this story. It was, was it Moose Murders? It's one of those. And this guy, his best friend, he saw him way down the hall. Been, maybe it was at Lincoln Center or something. And the friend goes, oh, you poor son of a bitch. <laughs> and that was the end of their relationship. I think it was Charlie Kimbrough who told me that, that story. 
But what about you? What about the reverse? Are there people you need? So when you're in the audience, you, you, we, we all have an unspoken contract, right, that we need to be supportive. That seems mm-hmm. only humane. But what about the other way around? Are there people that you really do want to know? You guys must be that for each other, right? Yeah, we talk the talk and walk the walk. Yeah, right. we do. Don't try this at home, kids, but it works for us. You, you're, you're, you're but br- but br- we usually bring honest? each other in, I don't know, brutal. I mean, <laughs> it's that thing of with a marriage, you have to be really honest and really kind. Right. I see what you're trying to do. I remember an acting teacher going, I see what you're trying to do. We do it early, though. You need people to come in during previews. Mm-hmm. You need your friends. I mean, I call in I call in all the Atlantic Theater Company folk. Yeah. I call in Bill really early. I call in my friend, Sarah Paulson. Yeah. I've made Sarah Paulson come to rehearsals. Right. She's like, I'm really? the, it's really weird that I'm here. I'm like, I don't I care. Don't care. <laughs> it's like Bill standing at the back of every scene as a monk. Okay, so what's the greatest show you've ever seen? The greatest show I've ever seen. Well, gosh, I loved Once, the musical Once. Oh, yeah. Killed me. That yeah. just killed me. And on that same trip, Flicka didn't tell me anything about this, but Come From Away. Come right. From Away. I think yeah, it's been on Broadway a couple of times. Yeah, it was brilliant destroyed me. It's all about 9-11 and it's musical and everybody plays the instruments and it's bare stage musical. Oh gosh, I was blown away. It is so important, isn't it, that we have this kind of spell be cast because the spell continues, doesn't it? Or does it? You guys tell me. The spell that's cast upon us. Yeah, the spell that's cast upon us by this strange art form in these strange darkened rooms with real life people laughing at you or listening to you, Mm. or in some way paying attention to you. That spell persists, does it, in your your lives? It does. Maybe it's because I just saw it, and it was brilliant, but seeing Holland Taylor and Anne, uh, it's that great marriage of skill, craftsmanship, artistry, and then improv. Yeah. And I just went, oh, that's, it's magic, and it's just so fleeting and ephemeral and powerful and it's such an odd combination of things that change you and are gone you can't hold on to them i'm so curious about the idea that death is somehow baked into the process i've got Mm. this very incoherent theory about that that because it can't be recorded though of course more people are recording plays doing plays plays. i love that part of it you you love the if you weren't in the room tonight you don't Right? You didn't yeah. see it. It's like a sort of theatrical version of Burning Man. Mm. You put it up, you take it down, mm. it, it doesn't exist at all except in your memory, mm. and then you redo it all again the next time. It gives night. me comfort because it makes the task not to to do it right, right, mm. but to just do it fully every night. Yes. Because it works. That's enough. Yes. That's why I think we're sufficient. Yeah. I, I think that's a really that's really well. I have good. flashes of things that I saw that were theatrical milestones. Mm. Tell me, at Goddard College, they did uh, some version of Ahab or the White Whale. I don't know what they called it, but the, all the guys are in the boat and they're going after the White Whale, yeah. and they all threw these this imaginary harpoon. Right downstage, and the audience ducked. They were not in a boat, and they had no harpoon. It was mm-hmm. a bare stage kind of a thing. And the I saw people go like this because they had hoisted it, and they did all this mime. And when they threw it, I thought that's pretty freaking yeah, good, man. That's fantastic. That's Houdini time. Yeah. What's yours? I remember seeing Mike Nichols at the interval of a play called La Bette. In, uh, I know Labette. You I saw Labette you, did in you see New that? York. Mark Rylance? Yes. And David Hyde Pierce? Yes. Yeah. And do you remember the incredible, sort of whatever it is, 17 minutes of Rylance's character talking at the yes. beginning of the play? Uh-huh. That extraordinary aria that you just can't believe is going on so long. And at any moment, and the extraordinary genius of it was David Hyde Pierce was such a participant in that conversation. Only Ryland spoke in this extraordinary, extravagant, he was playing this kind of grotesque character, right? But David Hyde Pierce at every single moment was a participant in that conversation. 
as his kind of interlocutor, you felt like he was about to say something or he was listening, absorbing everything. Nothing about it felt like it was artificial in any way. And at halftime, I remember the person I was with knew Mike Nicholson. We said hi to him. And he said, it's streetcar time. And what he meant by that was he'd seen Brando do streetcar. And he thought seeing Rylance do that performance was like, it's streetcar time. I think he may have said it's streetcar time, like sort of everything that was halfway good at a certain point. I heard that he threw that around quite a lot. But I was like, don't tell Rylance. Exactly. (laughs) My Nichols thinks it's streetcar time. It is streetcar time. (laughs) I saw John Malkovich do a play called Burn This. Oh, yeah. Do you remember? Did you ever see him do that? Yeah. I thought he was the bee's knees. The bee's knees. Was that in Chicago? Yeah. I saw it in London. I had a friend in it who describes an amazing moment while he was, while he was doing it. It's two amazing moments. One was, one was they were doing a, a dress rehearsal, and he said Malkovich was doing his crazy, extraordinary thing. And there was a letter, very specifically a letter was supposed to be there, and the letter was not on stage where it was supposed to be. The stage manager hadn't put it out or something. So he just sort of goes and walks over while still while he's talking, gets it off the props table. And carries on. It's such a tiny, stupid little thing. But this struck my friend so completely that he was so able to metabolize yeah. that mistake mm. in a way that felt like it was pure, like dancing again, like yeah. watching you do that. What you see is what piece. You get. It was just this grace mm. that he was. You you see actors in a state of grace yes. don't you, sometimes, mm. and it was really like that. The other thing was that this took place at a major during a major soccer tournament. I think it was World Cup, the World Cup 1990. And England were through to a penalty shootout against their mortal rivals, West Germany in the semifinals. And Malkovich happened to be off stage at the culmination of this penalty shootout. And he said to my friend, he said, if I, if England win... I'll come on and I'll just say, fuck you. And if they don't win, if Germany win, I'll say, screw you. So I'll let you know who <laughs> Fuck you if you won. Screw you if you lost. Uh, he came on and my, my, friend was, my friend was like, he went, screw you. And my friend, oh, no. I thought that was amazing that he could still oh sort of, you know. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, funny old theater, eh? Yep. God, how I It ain't it. dying. They've said it was dying since I got into this. I know. I think that rumors of its demise were around in, you know, Euripides' day. Anyway. This was a lovely I talk. I can't thank you enough for Wait, doing I have this. one more really good story about okay, that, which is, which you can cut out later, but <laughs> we were doing a play called Dangerous Corner. You probably know it. Yes. English play at Atlantic. Yeah. And uh, Mamet directed it. J.B. Priestley. Yes. And it was a hit. And so we had a long run. So we got a little bored towards the end of the run. So the first thing we did was our friend Mary McCann had just had a birthday and she, her boyfriend had given her these, or maybe, yeah, her boyfriend, husband at the time, had given her these diamond earrings. And we stole them before the show. And she was like, I can't find my diamond earrings. We were like, I don't know. That's, we got to get on Starry. Oh, my God, my diamond earrings. We're like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and then we had all these scenes where, you know, you're pouring sherry or something like that. And someone went over to Mary's glass right before a big moment. And they poured the sherry and then surreptitiously went clink, clink. And there were her diamond earrings. <laughs> so Mary, right before her first moment, went, oh, oh. <laughs> and then we started playing murder do you know have you ever yeah. played on winking. stage winking yes on stage have you ever done it on stage uh, not on stage <laughs> no where no. you, have, you would have busy. these one-on-ones you know with people but people wouldn't look at anyone because just in case you were the murderer so as you're sort of supposed to be making eye contact and having a contratar a love scene you'd see people sort of looking off to the wings and doing it <laughs> so all those things that one wow. does in the middle of a long run there used to be a story about there was a famous season at the Royal Shakespeare Company when it was, there was a production of sort of Henry the Fourth or something, and they had these great big helmets, and so everyone could secrete a little radio tr- transmitter <laughs> under there. There's a very important cricket 
series that was going on <laughs> that we said that you'd find the whole of the attendant lords at a certain point when a wicket fell go oh yes <laughs> <laughs> and they just go back to uh carrying That's their so funny. listen you guys i cannot thank you enough for doing this and i can't f- wait to see you both back on stage you're mm. both electric Performers on stage. Perhaps the three of us could be on the same. Wouldn't that be fun? Docket. That would be lovely. What about that? That would be very fun. God, you're putting a word with David Mamet for me. All right, we'll see. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. This was so fun. The great William H. Macy and the wonderful, wonderful Felicity Huffman. I'm so grateful to them for taking the time and talking so honestly and being so lovely and enjoyable and amusing. Bill, (laughs) this is, by the way, the first interview I did have ever done for this podcast. And Bill, I think, just thought I wanted a collection of theatre stories, which I did, particularly his theatre stories. And I was thrilled to be able to hear them, record them. But it was also lovely how it sort of deepened out into a bigger chat about life and theatre and theatre and life and life in the theatre. I particularly loved that thing that Felicity talked about, how to be great, to think of yourself as being great on stage, in her mind equates to being loved. I just thought that was such an interesting insight into her, but also into the mind of an artist. Just Sort of fascinating stuff. Gosh, I really do love these chats. Stage Door Johnny is an Offscript production. Thanks to Louise Berry, my exec producer. Thanks to Ben Backhouse, my producer. He's amazing. Thank you to Acast for all the support with the podcast. Thanks to the musicians. Icky Cake, Phoebe Cake, Rock Hard. Oh, and thank you to Ryan Connor, who was my sound engineer for my first trembling beginnings into podcasting, which was this this chat. Thanks, Ryan. Next week, my guest is the great playwright, Jez Butterworth. Maybe the greatest playwright of the 21st century? He's definitely going to be up there. I think by common consent, he wrote the greatest play of the 21st century, Jerusalem. And um, he's not done with that. He's written The Ferryman, which just won the Tony last year. He wrote uh, Mojo, which was revived not very long ago in a magnificent production. And he wrote my favorite play of all of his plays, which was a play called The River. Anyway, he's an extraordinary artist. And I really... I hope you can join me for that chat because Jez, apart from being one of the world's greatest playwrights, is one of the world's greatest talkers. He is an engine of fun. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Stage, 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 stage,